0: Today uh, we're gonna we're gonna have a conversation about lamentation. This is not a subject that we typically want to enter into willfully. Lamentation is an unwelcome visitor. Grief, sorrow, pain. It's an unwelcome visitor in our lives. But it's a reality in our lives. It happens. It happens frequently. It's a product of the fallen and broken world we live in. And the Lord keeps us here in the midst of it. He himself entered into the midst of our suffering and our laments. We just sang it. He set aside his glory and he entered into our world and suffered with us. Suffered for us. And in so doing, he set an example for us through suffering that we're called to follow. And lament is a part of that. I want to start by asking you a question, kind of a little interactive question. I want you all to answer with the first word that comes to your minds, the first word that comes to the top of your mind when I ask you this question. Answer out loud. I want us all to hear this. If lament were a food, what would it taste like? (laughs) I heard of broccoli out there. (laughs) Bitter, sour, vinegar, vinegar. I hear people describing flavors, tastes, that are repulsive to them. Is that a a fair summary of what I hear there? That's our response. That's our gut central default response to suffering. We don't want it. We don't see anything good in it. We see it as something to avoid, to cast out of our mouth. I mean, it is poison to us we don't want any of it and we behave accordingly we run from it man when when suffering shows up as a blip on our radar screens watch the evasive maneuvers we take to avoid it to sidestep it to get away from it to prevent it from lingering there from actually setting in and striking home we don't want anything to do with that My first personal memory of a visit with grief happened when I was about eight years old. My grandfather died of colon cancer. A few months later, uh, a buddy of mine in my class was diagnosed with leukemia. He made it about a year or so before he died. Grandpa's death and his burial in particular for me were the first time that I realized the finality of death. There are no do-overs at that point. When my friend died, the grief for me was much worse. You see, I blame myself for his illness. Uh, A really fun game of touch football at recess time on the playground had turned into an even better game of tackle football. And... uh, I like tackled him, and he hollered in, in real earnest pain. It turns out a, a muscle had separated from the bone. The tear, after a month or so, hadn't shown any real signs of healing, and so the doctors started running tests. That's when they found the leukemia. In my mind, a little boy, in my mind, I had caused the initial injury. And so I'd caused it all. No do-overs. It hurt. And I had no framework. I had no idea what to do with it. Today, I praise God, not for Brent's suffering, not for my own personal suffering, but for what God did with it. For the help that he gave me, he sent me, in two Sunday school teachers who loved me with the love of Christ, Bob and Yaikido, I can never begin to express the fullness of my gratitude to them. They entered into my grief willingly. And in godliness, they shepherded me through it. I didn't know it then, but their help sowed and watered the seeds that would eventually burst forth and produce fruit in me. Nearly 20 years later, when I found myself weeping on the floor of my apartment one night in Avery, Idaho, lamenting over the pain and suffering that my sin had caused me and other people and God. I confessed everything I could remember at that point, and I received life from above. That was the moment of my salvation. Lament was an integral part of my repentance. They're inseparable, they're not one in the same, but they can't be separated from one another. They're woven together, we find, in our personal experiences. I'm learning that lament is an essential part of abiding in Christ and of partaking in his sufferings. It's a part of the Christian life, I think. So it's important. Lament is much more than just emotional pain management. It's much more than just walking through the five stages of grief and loss as if our emotional suffering can be efficiently kind of managed to a quick and satisfactory end, and we put it away. Biblical lament recognizes the complexity of the circumstances that cause us to grieve and our related responses to those circumstances. Lament is literally the act of expressing our pain, our grief. That's the definition of it. If you look it up in a dictionary, that's something very close to that is what you'll get. It's this expressive action. It's active, verbal um, expression. Not necessarily verbal, it could be artistic. I mean, it's an expression of the grief of what's inside coming out. It's oftentimes referred to in a forceful way. There's, there's force behind it. I think of it this way. It's kind of like what happens if you squeeze a water balloon. Right? you squeeze it too much, what happens? All the contents burst out. Right? It's kind of like that. Under the pressure of pain, we find that we cannot contain the contents of our soul. And it bursts forth. Biblical lament, however, is not wild and undirected. It's it's not like this uncontrollable bursting forth of of the contents of a water balloon. Biblical lament has a framework to it. God has given us a framework and guidelines, a, a process through which we process our grief and through which he processes us, refining us, redeeming us, Sanctifying us. Mark Vogrup defines lament as uh, I love this definition. He defines lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. It has an end, it has a purpose. Lament is not directionless. There's a goal or an objective to lament. Michael Card notes that every one of us cried after we took our first breath. We enter the, the world with tears. To cry is human. But lament is different. Mark Rogrope says in his book, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, the practice of lament, the kind that is biblical, honest, and redemptive, is not as natural for us as crying because every lament is prayer. Do you hear that? Every lament is prayer. And we know how difficult it is for us to enter into prayer oftentimes. All the things at war against us going, it's not always natural. It takes effort. Continuing on, he says, a statement of faith. That's what lament is. It's a statement of faith. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. We struggle to bring these two things together that occur simultaneously. We know this to be true, but we're experiencing this And so how can this still be true if this is the reality I find myself in? We often struggle to give a voice to our suffering, to really express well and in godliness our suffering. Uh, Andrew Rogers has a list of four unbiblical voices that he says we often use to express our grief. I'll roll through them very quickly here. One of them is a pious voice. It's it's the voice that says there's no such thing as biblical complaining because, you know, complaining especially to God is unbiblical. After all, I mean, Philippians 2.10 instructs us to do all things without complaining, right? That's a misunderstanding of that verse for one because that verse is in the context of us complaining against one another in the body and causing disunity. That voice ultimately stuffs the pain deep inside, behind a belief that godliness equals stoicism. This is motivated by by the thought that one's own strength ought to be sufficient to get you through. This is the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. The prosperous voice says that if we speak negatively, we'll put into, seri- into motion a series of events that could lead to greater trouble and suffering. Complaining today will risk future prosperity, therefore. This voice also hides the suffering behind a facade, but it's motivated by a desire for material prosperity, and the risk that it perceived suffering puts that at. The pompous voice is brutally honest, he says. We shake our fists in the air at God and tell him un- with unbridled fury that we don't like what he's done. We're not happy. He's a big boy, right? He can take it. That's the attitude behind it. This voice is motivated by pride and a sense of entitlement. The pity voice is the fourth. This voice seeks to turn all eyes on itself. Everyone must know my pain. I want the pity-filled attention of all y'all. This voice is also motivated by pride. It's a prideful, attention-seeking, self-centeredness. All four of these voices are not God-centered. They are self-centered in some way, shape, or form. There are each forms of expressing sinful pride in the midst of our grief. Sometimes, sometimes, I think we see it in some of those voices there. We try to camouflage our pride with a fake facade of humility. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You hear that? Paul gives us two categories of grieving, lamenting. There's a worldly grieving and a godly grieving. Godly grieving leads to repentance and salvation without regret. That's a beautiful thing. That's a gift. Worldly grief produces death. Why? Because the worldly grief is rooted in worldly thinking. At its core, it's pride-driven. It's self-centered. Sin is at the essence of worldly grief. And the wages of sin is death. All it can produce is death. That's why worldly grief leads to death. But God has given us a better way. Grief is ever-present in our lives, yet American Christians are resistant to expressing our grief openly. We avoid entering into the mournful expressions of pain that we experience. Why? 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 I don't know all the reasons why, but I I would like to make a few suggestions. I I think we're immersed in a culture, quite frankly, that worships the pursuit of happiness at the expense of acknowledging the reality of pain and suffering all around us. There's a spiritual blindness that attempts to keep up an idol of happiness. Sometimes our own emotions feel so powerful and out of control that I think we're afraid of them, so we run from them. We have an unbalanced concern sometimes over what other people will think of us. We don't want to burden anyone with our junk, right? Now when we do that, we make our suffering seem undignified and shameful. And it's not. It's not. Suffering does not have to be undignified or shameful. As parents, we oftentimes model, and I I can include myself in this. As parents, we oftentimes model unbiblical methods of handling grief to our children largely because our parents didn't model godly grief and lament to us, and so on and so forth. It's all we've ever known. We don't know any other way. We've never been taught another way. We are a product of our cultural norms. I also think that we're aware that how we express our grief will produce evidence of the real stuff that's inside of us. Remember squeezing that balloon? Sometimes we know there's stuff inside of us that we don't want other people to see. And so we try to suppress it. The rising pressure of our suffering, we know can make a display of the sin that we've harbored in our hearts. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we need to enter into lament because lament is a gift given to us in the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. And remember what you said, the taste of lament is to you. Remember that and hear these words from Ezekiel. Chapter 2, verse 8, ending in chapter 3, 3. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. not as disgusting as broccoli, (laughs) as sweet as honey. God wrote those laments. God wrote them, and he gave them to Ezekiel. And he told Ezekiel to take them in and then give them back to the people so that they'll give them back to me These are God's words for us. And he says they're sweet as honey. They're good. Lament is good. Even desirable. At least a third of all the psalms are prayers of lament. At least a third of them. Lament is a major thread throughout the book of Job. We'll take a little bit of a look at that today. The prophets are full of laments. The book of Lamentations records graphic suffering and corporate laments of the nation of Judah during the siege and fall of Jerusalem. Jesus lamented twice over Jerusalem. He weeps with Mary over the death of Lazarus. He shares his anguish with the disciples during the Last Supper. There's lament in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. His cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is a direct quote from the Lament Psalm, Psalm 22. The martyrs lament In Revelation 6.10. In the very presence of God, they're lamenting, crying out to him, when, Lord, will you make it all right? Lament entered the world right on the heels of the first sin in the garden. And it will be with us until the new Jerusalem comes. It's here. It's here to stay. And it's here for our good. I think lament is all through Scripture because it's designed to lead us into the presence of God and because God's glory is displayed through our godly lament. We receive something good out of lament, but lament is about glorifying God in the midst of the darkness and the pain of our suffering. That's what it's really about. And we can see this in the book of Job. I'm gonna give us a real quick run through. We don't have time, there's 42 chapters in the book. but What I wanna do is run through real fast and just take a quick glance at a few of the attributes of some of Job's laments, his personal laments, and pull out some, some kind of categories or of the process of lamenting and highlight that for us today and hopefully it will be an encouragement next week we'll look at Job again and we'll look at the corporate aspect of lament remember the Psalms, a third of them are songs of lament that's corporate worship that's what they're written for most of lament in scripture is actually corporate Now there's a personal aspect to it and that's what we need to understand here and that's what I want to focus on today but next week we'll look at that corporate aspect how we can enter into lament with others in either helpful or hurtful ways. The book of Job gives us some great fodder for conversation over that. In the ancient world in which Job was written there was this fundamental belief. I want to lay this out in the background just because it provides some good basis for for some of what occurs throughout the book. The belief that if I keep all the laws of God and all his prescribed rituals, then God will bless me because he's obliged to under his own law. I do what's right. God must bless me. Stick an equal sign in between there, right? It's an equation, so to speak, Conversely, if I break any of God's laws, he is obligated to punish me because he's just and right. And that's it. That's how man relates to God and God relates to man. That's it. Draw a nice tidy box around it. That's the fundamental belief there. That belief is still pervasive today all over the globe. And unfortunately... It exists within the evangelical churches as well. It's very alive and present. But the book of Job shows us that it's not right. It's not entirely right. God is not hemmed into a box. Job is commended as being blameless and upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. Three times he's commended that way in the book of Job in the first two chapters. Twice those words come right out of the lips of God Himself. Twice. The book starts out with a kind of an example of of Job's righteousness, his piousness, his good godliness, and then we're presented with a scene in heaven of this great assembly of all the angels of the heavenly realms being called before God to make an account for themselves. And Satan is with them. God begins the dialogue with Satan and he calls out Job. He expresses pride in Job. At this, the accuser leaps into action. He essentially claims before God that Job is really only using God for personal gain. That's the first accusation. And then he says, We can prove it. Take away all of his possessions, and he'll curse you to your face. Satan is directly challenging God, not so much Job here. Because God has elevated Job and said, see, this man is upright and righteous, and I love him, and he loves me. Satan is defaming God's glory by saying that Job, or any other person, by implication, Job doesn't think that God's worthy of his unconditional love. Not really. He's saying, you're actually deceived, God. He, that's not true. By implication, Satan's telling God that he himself isn't really worthy of anyone's total devotion. God doesn't need to prove himself before anyone. But because he's holy, he'll not allow his public expressions of glory to be mocked without answer. God, knowing full well the depths of Job's faithfulness, he knows his heart. What God has proclaimed about Job is true. He knows Job's heart. Knowing full well Job's heart, God allows Satan to touch all of his possessions. But he says you can't touch the man, just what he has, in accordance with your accusation. I think God does this because he knows that Satan's the one who's gonna fail the trial. In one soul-crushing moment, Job finds out that he's lost his vast wealth and all 10 of his children. Every symbol of his prosperity is taken away from him in a few coordinated and violent events. One servant out of each episode of calamity is spared so that they can run to him and give a report. And they come literally on the heels of one another. As one report is finished, another one starts. And the weight of loss crashes down on Job in a moment. Now Job knows nothing of what has transpired in heaven. He doesn't know anything about it. Job tears his robe and he shaves his head. Both of these are customary signs of grieving. They're cultural responses to to deep and sudden suffering. Job begins to lament. Then he does something that, quite frankly, is shocking. Given the bad news he's just received, Job falls on the ground and worships. He worships. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, that is a powerful prayer of faith. At the onset of suffering, deep suffering, Job turns to God right there, right out the chute. He turns to God and he proves that his love for God in that moment is not, as John Piper likes to say, it's not mercenary love. Job's gospel, Job's relationship with God is not a prosperity gospel in which we're led to love God for what he gives us. Job proves in that painful act of worship that his love is pure. He loves God for who God is, not for what God gives. Sometime later, we find after this, it says there's an on another day, there's another assembly in heaven. The scene looks exactly like the one before. And God lifts up Job again, commending him even further, saying, See, even though you incited me against him, he still, he still loves me. Satan pounces again and says, No, no, you cheated. You cheated. You didn't let me touch his flesh. You let me touch his flesh, he'll curse you to your face. Once again, God knows Job's heart. And he allows Satan, the reign to do so with one condition. He says, but you can't, you can't kill him. You can't take his life. Mm. Job is afflicted with a pestilence that is just horrific. The descriptions of it in Job's own words and his laments are horrible. He has sores from the top of his scalp to the bottoms of his feet. Open wounds all over him, sores. Job, having been thus afflicted, he sits down in the ashes of the refuge heap. He grabs a piece of blow, broken clay pot shard and scrapes the nastiness from his open sores. According to Job 7.5, his sores are filled with dirt and worms. Job looks like a zombie. When his friends come to him, they don't even recognize him. And then in this condition, after suffering all this grief, then Job's wife comes to him. And before we say anything about that, I want us to recognize that Job's wife has suffered. She is under the same cloud of suffering that Job is. Those were also her children. All the wealth that he lost was the wealth she shared with him. Everything he lost, she has lost. She's in the same state. And now her husband, now her husband, the man who led the family spiritually, can't even do so because he's unclean. That's why he's, one of the reasons why he's probably sitting in the ash heap out in the rubbish pile. He can't be in worship because he's unclean. He can't even lead the family now. What's left? Oh, she's in deep grief. And she comes to him and she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. That's the hinge point of despair. Despair is the point at which we've completely lost sight of God. That's where disbelief actually enters in. I think in that moment, and I imagine that moment as I'm reading through Job, I'm like, man, all the angels in heaven must have been sitting there watching that. And it's like the championship game of the NCAA tournament and it's a neck-and-neck neck score. It's the last two seconds of the game, and as the buzzer goes off, that last buzzer-beater shot goes up, and everything goes silent, with the anticipation, the wonder: What oh, is it going to go? Is it going to go? Joe. Joe makes the shot. He says, "Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil?" for a second time there, right on the heels of that. The word tells us that in all this, Job did not sin. Job gave God glory. It showed him love and showed his faith in God. But the story doesn't end there. Right? I imagine the angels going, yeah, there's this huge cheering, right? celebration in heaven. But in my mind, I keep saying, I look at it and I'm like, Part of me wants to say that the end of chapter 42 should be right here. Right? But it's not. It's not. It doesn't come in there. There's still like 39 chapters in between. The story doesn't end here. We never hear from Satan again. He's silenced. But in chapter 7... Verses 2 and 3, Job himself says, like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hireling who looks for his wages, I'm allotted months of emptiness, months, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. Job's suffering was deep and persistent and it lasted a long time. There's a duration to this suffering. Why, we can wonder, wasn't Job's faithfulness to God his worthiness proven conclusively and the trial ended. Why? Why doesn't the story skip to the end of chapter 42 for the happy ending? I think the answer is that Job has much yet to learn, and so do we, about the nature of his relationship with God. And and let's be honest here. Uh, If that happy ending came right there, I think we'd see through the thin veneer of it. It would look just like a Hallmark special movie, right? I mean, it's, everything is perfect in scripted, and it all comes out, right? And we know from our experience, we know that's not reality. And I don't think it would bear the weight for us that it truly does today. God knows our, our suffering and he depicts it as we experience it. Now, Job's three friends, they hear of his suffering. They get themselves organized. They come to him together. Like I said, when they see him, they don't recognize him. They tear their clothes. They throw dust on their heads, and they weep loudly. And then they come to him, and they sit with him silently for seven days. They acknowledge the depth of his suffering, and they enter into it with him. Man, these guys are good friends, until they start to talk. After seven days, maybe longer, we don't know, but at least we've got the seven days described explicitly. Job sitting there silent with all of his thoughts, All the emotions just swirling around, bottled up inside, silent. In chapter three, Job expresses his first lament. His pain is so deep and raw at this point that he curses the day he was ever born. This isn't a suicidal expression. What Job is saying is that this pain is so great. I can't take this pain. I wish I would never have had to experience it. I wish I would never have been so that I wouldn't have to be here now. Oh, he's, he's hurting. Job is on the brink of despair. You can see it in the language he uses. He is on the brink of despair. Much of what he expresses is very focused on what he's feeling in that first lament. But not quite all of it. There's still a search for God in there. Job very honestly expresses his pain. And that's the complaint of lament. That's the complaint of it. We turn first in prayer. We turn to God. We see Job turn to God here right away. After each of the miseries that befall him, he turns to God in prayer. As he's lamenting through the records of his next number of chapters going through, occasionally he gets distracted from his lament as he tries to respond to the accusations that his friends actually end up making against him. And begins to drift away he begins to fall back into despair after he's started to climb out of it but he always turns back he turns back in prayer and he begins to lament he picks up his lament again and again and again he turns to god that's where it starts but then we complain before god as well Much of the heart of a lament is expressing our complaints, our grief, our pain, the causes of our grief and our pain. We're expressing what we're experiencing to God. It's necessary. We need to. If we don't, if we don't, it'll eat us alive from the inside out. And it may lead us to cause harm to others. This is a fruitful Expression of deep pain and everything that comes along with it, all of the anger, all of the loneliness, all of the, all of it. We can express it as a complaint before God. He's given us that right. He's given us that opportunity. Yes, he is big enough to take it. The real question is do we trust him enough to give it to him? Do we trust him enough to give it to him? And so the complaints are given in the foundation of trust. Right? This is another aspect of lament. We turn to God. We turn to him in lamenting in prayer. We complain before him with all of our complaints. Some of Job's complaints are raw. Why did I not die at birth? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? In that one, Satan in heaven talked about Job being hedged in, but in a way where God's hedge was a hedge of protection around him. Job here is saying, I'm hedged in. What he's saying he's hedged in by is the prison walls of despair, A very different kind of hedge. One that he's struggling to find a way out of. Crying out to God for help to get out of. Job's laments are very often raw and messy, but as he progresses through lamentation, as he moves through it in the book of Job, we see his laments begin to refine, coalesce, and become more salient as he presents all these complaints before God, some of them begin to kind of really fall off to the side. That's not really my issue. Actually, it's this. And what typically this final is, in almost all laments, we find the lamenter realizes that what what I need, what I'm missing, what I'm longing for is your presence, my God, my suffering. I feel it so much, but I don't feel you I long for you. Where are you, O oh God? Oh, that phrase we see so often in lament. And then on the heels of it, how can this be? How can this be happening to me? Because I know that you're loving and that you love me. Then how can this be? Those are the two central essences of almost all of our lament. Sometimes it takes us a while to get there. But we need to work our way through it to get there so that we realize what our real pain actually is. It's a longing for relationship restored. It's a longing for relationship sustained. We want our God. And in that sense, it glorifies God. Because we, like his little children, run to him, crying out, Abba, Father, I need you. I'm hurt. I'm hurt. I need you. Come. And then we petition him. We ask him to act on our behalf in accordance with his character. That's godly lament. We ask God not to act based on our works, but to ask on his character in accordance with what he has already said about himself. Lord, you are just. Lord, you are loving. But I'm not feeling it right now. It's not part of my experience. Show it to me. Which is part and parcel of us asking for his presence with us and seeking his presence with us. You see lament drawing us near to God. And calling him in towards us. And then we trust God. We trust God. Trust is woven through all of it. If we don't trust him, we won't pray initially. Will we? If we don't trust him, we can't really, won't really carry our complaints to him. If we don't trust him, we won't call on him to act according to who we know he is. And so the fourth concrete aspect of lament is trust in God. Job expressed his trust in God's goodness and justice in 23, 4 through 7. He says, I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would say, what he would answer me, and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, Job says. He would pay attention to me. There, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. That is trust. That is leaning on the character that God has already displayed to Job, the character that he expects out of God. That is God, Job also appealing to God to behave in correspondence, you know, in, in, in the same way as his character has been described. It takes Job a long time to get there, but he gets there and God is patient. Part of Job's frustration is that God is silent, but in God's silence, he's being patient and he's allowing Job to wrestle, to wrestle, to wrestle through the process of lament I'm short on time, so I've been blowing through a number of things here real quick. But in the end of this all, I want us to also see that not only is lament worship, but I I believe this fundamental to be true, there is no evangelism without first worship. There's no reason to share the good news that we know. If we haven't worshiped first, we don't have the good news to share. When we come down to the end of this all, God speaks. He breaks his own silence. He never answers any of Job's questions. Never does. Instead, man, he hits Job with a barrage of questions that no man can answer. And in so doing, Job rocks back and is humbled. And he realizes that my relationship with my God wasn't dependent on my righteousness. All along, my relationship with my God was really dependent on his graciousness. Wow. That's where Job ends up. His relationship, he's been seeking, 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 seeking. And when God shows up, he finds him, but he finds a he finds a much richer God than he had known before the suffering started. He's found a deep treasure, a worthy treasure. And as that happens to him, God seems to look in and use Job's sufferings, almost like a foreshadowing of how he eventually uses Jesus' sufferings to bridge the gap for his buddies as well. Because Job ends up being the one who God instructs to pray for them. Because God looks at them and says, what you have said about me was wrong. You were not in the right. And under their belief, oh, woe to them. They've offended God now. They know what's coming. At least they think they do. But that's not what God gives them. That's not what He gives them. Through Job's suffering and Job's righteousness, He says, Job, you pray for those men. And Job does, and they're restored. Grace comes to those men through Job from God. And you see these three guys, four if you include Elihu at the end, he's kind of an enigma in there. But these guys also find a new God, a greater God than they thought they had known before. And God's glory is magnified far beyond just Job in this. Lament is powerful in our lives. How we lament Is part of how we express and reveal the glory of God in this fallen and broken world. To one another and to those who don't know Him yet. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father. We turn to you in this moment. We turn to you in this moment because we trust you. We turn to you in this moment and we confess the reality of sin, the reality of suffering, the pain, the loneliness, the anger, the grief, all of it that comes along with that. We experience it. Our loved ones experience it. Everyone around us knows this suffering. This world hurts Father. And it means to do us harm. But you God, but you, God, love us, and we know that you have our best interests in mind, and we know that you will never leave us, and that you will never forsake us, Father. And we know that even as we enter into suffering, we can enter into lament because we know that though we walk through the shadow of the valley of death, we will fear no evil. Because, Lord Jesus, you are our shepherd. Because we know that you led us into that valley and you will lead us through it and out of it. And you will take us to good pasture and fresh water and to rest. Lord Jesus, we trust in you. So much so that we bring to you our hurt, that we bring to you our pain, we bring to you all of our suffering, Lord, and we trust your gentle and tender hands to handle it well. And we thank you. We thank you. And we ask you, Lord, come soon, please. And give us the strength to endure and to hold on to the hope that you've set before us. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, we love you, we love you. And we thank our Heavenly Father for the gift of lament today. In the holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.